0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.
1: Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage shopify is there to help you grow shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with shopify get a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash work shopify.com slash work
2: ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices
3: economic indicators. Who knows
2: where this is going to end up?
0: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How are you doing there? It's podcast time. I have a real little treat for you. An old old friend is in town, Dan Ariely, who is probably the world's preeminent. He, he's he's humble so he won't agree with this behavioral economist, an extraordinary mind. His book, Predictably Irrational, New York Times bestseller. If you want to delve into behavioral economics and this is your first time, I can advise you on YouTube, online, his books, his lectures, his ideas. Just look up Dan Ariely and the world will seem a little bit more clear to you. A uh, Friend I've known for a good few years. We've Kilcanomics, maybe, maybe ten recidivist. years. Yeah, maybe ten yeah. years. I'll actually tell you what happened. I was asked many years ago, maybe ten years ago, to go to something called the Zeitgeist Festival of Google, in a place called. I think it was in Arizona. Or Arizona. Yeah. 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 Do you remember that place? Yeah, yeah. So I'm sitting in the audience. I was I was giving a speech, but then I gave my speech, and then I'm sitting in the audience, and this fella turns up, and I'm mesmerized i'm thinking wow this is really impressive so being williams uh, kind of a little bit yeah. forward i went up and said how's it going man do you want to come to ireland he goes yeah and that was the height of it that that's was, right do you remember that's
3: that right. yeah and since then i've been many times many to economics times. yeah and many love the here. place um learned how to drink whiskey Yes. <laughs> it's very important. It is very, very important.
0: Yeah. So Dan and I, were talking about behavioral economics. We're talking about psychology. We're talking about how we interpret the world around us. You know, I want to, before I talk to you about anti-vaccine, I want to talk to you about this idea of the experience economy. Because you, you hear this in branding and advertising all the time, that people actually want something deeper than just the transaction.
3: What, yeah. What's that all about? So let's first realize how much meaning is part of the experience. And there's a, there's a paper I did, it, I also wrote about it in, in, in my first book, in which I gave people electrical shocks. <laughs> and I measured As how much do. pain they experience. Okay, so there was, uh, people came to the lab, they experienced a whole set of electrical shocks, we measured how painful this was. Then I gave them a painkiller, and then I gave them the same shocks again. Now, that painkiller was a placebo. It was was nothing. There was a sugar pill, right? Um, But I told him it was one of four versions. It was either a cheap placebo made in China, an expensive placebo made in China, a cheap placebo made in the US, or expensive placebo made in the US. And the question was, to what extent would this fake medication, it has nothing in it, would make the second set of electrical shocks lower in perceived intensity than the first one. And the results were basically that the China versus the US didn't matter that much. And We can go into that, but it doesn't matter for now. But that the expensive placebo worked much better than the cheap placebo. People experienced more relief. Now, the question is why? And this is because of expectations. And, and the thing about expectations is that they really changes in fundamental ways. So if you remember, you know, like classical condition in Pavlov, right? Pavlov's dog, right? What, mm. what happened with Pavlov's dog? There was a bell, meat, salivation, right? You could measure that the dog was salivating to the meat. Bell, meat, salivation, bell, meat, salivation. And at some point the salivation started reacting to the bell, right? And that was a, to, to a non-relevant stimuli. And the thing is that this is really about expectation. Yeah. What happened is that the bell is creating the expectation that meat will come, and the physiology changes. And this is actually the power of expectation. The power of expectation is that we think something will going to happen, and our physiology changes already yeah. in anticipation of it. And with pain, we actually knows we know how it works. So, if you get a doctor to inject you with something. Actually, take a step back. The reason I got interested in placebo is that, as you know, I was I was a, a burned patient. I was in hospital for about three years, and when I was in hospital, we got a, a ration of six injections of morphine a day, and uh, you—that's a lot. I had to. It's a lot, but it's not that much when you have burn. burns are very mm-hmm. painful. I had seventy percent of my body was burned, and and the whole. Activity during the day was how long can I wait? I want to keep one for the night, but you know, uh, kind of playing the game of how do I manage the six portions uh, throughout the day? And one night I hear the guy in the room next to me shouting from pain and the nurse goes to his room. It sounds like she's injecting him with something and then he falls asleep. And I thought it was like his seventh injection of the day. So I called the nurse and I say, "Etty, I think I think he got this. Was her name? I th- <laughs> he got one more. I think he, got he got my one. <laughs> one extra. I I want seven too." And she told me, "No, I just gave him IV fluid, placebo." And you know, it's one thing to read about placebos, but it's a, it's a completely different thing to know that the person next to you in the room has the same pain that I was experiencing, that they got an injection with nothing, and, and they, they, were they reacted positively. Yeah. And and the thing about placebo for pain, which is the one we know the best, is that when a doctor injects you with something, your body secretes a painkiller. Endogenous opioids. We have a substance very much like opium, very much like morphine, in our bodies. And we can release it. Now, you can't close your eyes and say, please, 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 can I release it? It doesn't work like this. Mm -hmm. But it works like a condition response in Pavlov experiments where an injection, whether there's something in the injection or not, triggers a response where your body starts secreting it, right? In the same way that if I gave you coffee now, and you're a coffee drinker, but I gave you coffee that decaffeinated, I didn't tell you about it, it would have the same effect, Yeah, right? Because some of the effect is coming from your anticipation and not this. So the first thing we need to understand when we talk about meaning is that anticipation is a real part of the experience. Yes. Now it's a really interesting thing, right? It's kind of the question about mind versus body. No, they're they're together. They're together in a in a really interesting way. That if you're ex, if you anticipate the meal to be better, it will be better. If you anticipate sex with your loved one to be better, it will be better. I mean, like you can't make something that is zero quality, a hundred, but, yeah. but you can certainly yeah. you can certainly increase the quality. So that's that's part number one, is that our mind creates anticipation. It plays tricks on us. And our body's physiology changes as a function of that, and therefore we experience things differently. So that's the first part. And then the second part is that we do consume meaning. And, this and, and this I find fascinating.
0: We consume meaning. We consume
3: meaning. So let's say I, I buy a bottle of Irish whiskey and I consume it at home, and it will bring some of the memories of being here yes. with it it would not be the same as buying a Kentucky, whatever, bourbon. A bourbon, yeah. And not just because of the, the whiskey versus bourbon, it's because some of the meaning sticks. Now, you know, there's, there's this question about voodoo. Uh, there's, there's an amazing researcher called Paul Rosin, and he shows that to some extent, we all believe in voodoo to some degree. For example, you have plenty of pictures imagine that you digitize all of them. Mm-hmm. How would you feel about burning the old pictures? Awful. Awful? <laughs> yeah, awful. Why? I don't know why, but I want to keep them. Because some of the meaning, like to burn a picture of loved ones, Yeah, feel a, like a,
0: a very aggressive,
3: unpleasant, derogatory act. Yeah, yeah. Or here's another experiment he did. He basically gave people a picture of JFK. And he drew a dart map. On it. Mm. And he said, I'll pay you. For, for double top. For, for the, rib, the bullseye. the middle, middle. And then he also showed people of somebody hated, like Saddam Hussein. And uh, people were much better with Saddam Hussein. than with the, the JFK, yeah. Hitting JFK is just tough. It's yeah. just tough. It, and it's not. <laughs> nobody is confusing. Say, oh, it's the real person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But psychologically, meaning, it's... but meaning meaning sticks in a way we we don't always recognize. And and the question is for us is how do we like a lot of irrationalities? The question is how do we use it for our benefit? And and the thing about this is that if we ignore it, we're not getting much value. But if we understand it and we utilize it in the right way we can actually have a more enjoyable life. Yeah. So so wearing a t-shirt that you remember where you bought it from and it has some meaning connected to it is is better. Drinking from a cup that your friend gave it to you and you think about that friend is is really important. That's why by the way when I give gifts to people I don't just think about what this person wants. I think about what would help that person have better memories yeah so so when my my PhD students graduate i usually give them an expensive pen it's kind of a strange gift because it's expensive and nobody's using pens anymore but i think that a pen an expensive pen is something that you keep on your desk yeah you keep on remembering it and when you take it out and you write with a nice pen you 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 think about the person I, I, yeah, who
0: yeah no you're absolutely right so we're kinda of talking about the, the kind of bizarre economics of meaning, yeah. which is which is an area that I rarely think about. But
3: it's unbelievably valuable and profound. Unbelievable. I mean, think about Guinness, yeah. right? It, there's no question that part of the story is the history of of Guinness. It's yes, it's inseparable. Right. Yeah. Imagine that Guinness was invented today. Yeah, this black, kind of unpleasant tasting. <laughs> you know, how? what What would it be? It, it, it's hard to figure out, of course, because we, we can't do this experiment. But but I think it would be very different. The, the history does does no, matter. It, well, it,
2: actually, that's interesting if you just take Guinness alone, because Guinness have which, been... Which, uh,
0: by the way, John likes a lot.
2: <laughs> I do indeed, but it's, you know, they've been tinkering around with Guinness and the formula for years, And back in the eighties, do you remember Guinness Light? Guinness Light they brought out, and on paper, you know, all their research said, yeah, you know, we like Guinness, but we'd like it as a kind of if it wasn't so heavy and so bitter and so all this kind of stuff. So they created Guinness Light, which on paper should have been a massive seller, Mm -hmm. and it completely and utterly flopped. Yeah, and I because it wasn't the real. Well, I remember my granny had a pub, and that was a real
0: acid test. So there was a pub in West Cork. Clientele, mainly farmers, right?
3: Yeah.
0: And the Guinness Light, I remember it was about 1980, it was and I was a kid, but yeah. I was in the bar, and you could just sense that it was flopping. Yeah. Like from the
3: moment it was introduced, because it had no meaning for them. So the 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 story on this that is the most well documented is Coke versus Pepsi. So in the US, there was something called the Pepsi Challenge. Mm. You know, I Coke remember, was the yeah. established yeah, yeah, yeah. brand and Pepsi came up and they did the Pepsi challenge and they would stand on the street and they would let people taste a sample of Coke, a sample of Pepsi. Which one do you like better? Most people preferred Pepsi. And they said, you know, people preferred, I don't remember the number, but let's say 80% 80 preferred Pepsi. Then Coke did the same thing. Here's Coke, here's Pepsi. Which one do you prefer? Most people preferred Coke. (laughs) The question, how come? How come? It turned out that Pepsi did the blind taste you tasted a cup of A, a cup, cup of, B, of a B, and you say which one do you like better? And it ended up people liked Pepsi more. Coke did it non-blinded. You tasted a can of Coke, a can of Pepsi, and you and knew people, you and you, you knew which one it was. So then, then Coke said, "Well, if people like Pepsi better in the blind taste, let's figure out our formula again." So they they did a lot of you know little cups and different concentration of sugar and, and syrup and so on. And they came up with new Coke. And they I put remember. it in the bottle in the, bottle yeah. In yeah. the can of, of old Coke and people hated it. Yeah. <laughs> now there was a really interesting neuroscience study in which they put people in fMRI. fMRI is a machine that can image the, the, the blood flow in the brain, which indicates which parts of the brain are active. And they did the Pepsi Coke challenge. And uh, some people got Coke and were told it was Coke, and some people got Pepsi and told it was Pepsi. Some people got it and were not told. And what they found is that the pleasure center of the brain reacted more positively when people got Coke and knew it was Coke. So you know, some Sounds of the confirmation it, bias in their it's own heads—it's a, it's a meaning. It's the—it's again, it's the meaning. It's when okay. you there's some joy from the syrup and sugar but some joy is coming from the idea that this is an American drink and I drink it on these holidays and I think about it this way and it's a a comfort and it's connected to all kinds of other things. And if you think about branding, branding is trying to create meaning in a sustainable way to an experience. If you're wearing a, a Rolex watch and you're a Rolex kind of a person, you are getting an extra uh, a, Rolex that, uh, a Rolex kick yeah, from yeah, yeah. this. A Rolex. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> so that was the Economics of Meaning, and in a minute we're going to get into the psychology of COVID deniers.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
0: Let let's actually switch from meaning, because it is fascinating, to something that you've been working on recently, and it's really, really opposite germane and current, which is vaccine
3: anti-vaxxers. Tell me about the psychology of this. So it's not just anti-vaxxers. I think that the real issue is the, the, the COVID denying, which is which kind of okay, is a bigger is a bigger phenomenon okay. than, than this. So somewhere last year, maybe in June 2020, I get an email from, from somebody I know, kind of like third circle, somebody I helped a long time ago. And, and she says, Dan, what's wrong with you? How did you change this way? When did you become so selfish and greedy? And I say, I, I write back and I say, oh, I, I, I didn't know I changed. Like what, what do you have in mind? And she sent me this set of links and I followed the links and I realize that I am unbelievably hated by a large group of people. In Israel or in America? Or- mostly in Israel, but, but in other places too, that think that I'm part of what is called Agenda 21. What and is Agenda 21? Tw- agenda 21 is, is the idea that Bill Gates and the Illuminati uh, want to reduce the population of the world. Uh, the world is this, mm. we have too many people. We, we The world cannot support everybody. And Bill Gates they, and, and the Illuminati want to reduce the population of the earth. And Agenda 21 is, is that agenda, the, the UN development goals are part of this. And COVID in this set of beliefs is designed, it's a, it's a fake invented disease, designed to frighten people into getting the vaccination. And the vaccination itself is supposed to hurt fertility of women for the population control. And we're supposed to get an international passport for vaccine, which would allow the Illuminati and Bill Gates to track- uh, All of us. uh, All Mm. of us, yes. So that's the agenda. And I, and all of a sudden, I discovered that I'm, part of the Illuminati and I'm I'm part of this. And so
0: welcome this- well, well, well welcome to the Illuminati. John and I have been members of the Illuminati <laughs> for many years.
3: <laughs> we have funny found- handshakes. We are
0: we are, we are we are actually founded
3: members of the Illuminati. So go on. And so when it happened, you know, first of all I was I watched a discussion on YouTube between two women who were discussing my her personal shortcomings and my, my behavior and all kinds of things like that and bizarre it, it was very bizarre take it as a compliment to women discussing full <laughs> stop. <Yeah. laughs> by the way they, they, they build it on all kinds of all kinds of things but um you know I, I did work with the Gates Foundation on hunger in Africa I did do some things on on vaccinations. So there was enough evidence for them. There was some evidence but one of the pieces of evidence which was really odd was do you remember Jonathan Swift, uh, a modest proposal. Oh yes. So oh, yes. So in that in that which essay which was actually about how the English should eat Irish children. It was the the British or it was about the the how the poor should sell their kids it's, to the wealthy. Uh, yeah. So there was the the background noise
0: was he was taking the mickey out of what was happening here. Yeah. But it was basically that the poor should sell their children.
3: Yeah. to be eaten. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so so he had this uh, very humorful if you understand it, essay about how the poor should sell the kids to uh, the wealthy for food and when the kids would get (laughs) clumpy and all kinds of things like that. (laughs) So at some point I gave my own version for this. Uh, Not as good of course, but I gave my own version. This was for a medical conference. And in that conference I said, look, the the challenge with with medicine, modern medicine, is a problem of supply and demand. People want a lot, the system doesn't give as much. most people are focusing on how we can get the system to give more. I said, let's look at the problem differently. Let's ask people to want less, right? You, you could deal with the demand, not with the supply. So I said, for example, why don't we just slow down ambulances, right? Get them to get there a little slower, <laughs> calm, down. calm down. You know, many people would, would not get a second heart attack, right? I said, let's encourage smoking. Let's increase stress. Now, all of this was, of course, not just in jest, but I was commenting on the fact that the healthcare system is not really thinking about preventative care. We're not thinking about population health and so on. But the COVID deniers uh, took that as a, at face value.
0: Yeah, total red rag to the bull.
3: And basically said, you know, here's Dan uh, wanting the system to kill more people uh, to get, <laughs> and, and so on. So and, and they connected some other things and so on. So my first reaction was to try and convince them that this was just not true, and I joined some of the Facebook groups and Telegram and WhatsApp and so on and tried, but there was no convincing. Then I tried to talk to some of their leaders, and it was incredibly difficult. You know, you know what's the definition of bullshit? We can give you many definitions. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there was a there's a beautiful essay called "On Bullshit." On bullshit, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and in that essay, the basic insight is that when you and I are talking about something, let's say the Irish economy, if we're actually talking about the Irish economy, this is not bullshit. But if you and I are talking about the, the Irish economy, but you are trying to demonstrate your superiority in yeah. economics, yeah, yeah, yeah. now it's bullshit. Why yes. is it bullshit? Because we're not, you're not really talking about the topics that you're supposedly talking about. You have a different agenda yeah. that you're trying to, to promote. And, and I felt very much like that. I couldn't talk about uh, the essence of things. And then, and then I took a step back and, and tried to understand a little bit the COVID deniers. And I stopped participating and I stopped and I, and I just read and listen and, and so on. And I have to tell you that, that my heart went out to them and, and, and it still does. And the reason is that I see a lot of fear and a lot of confusion. And you know, I have a few kind of guiding angels who from the, the denier communities who are sending me different posts and websites yeah. and so on, and many of those are are fake. And the reality is it takes hours to figure out what's fake and not fake. Yeah, And I went some of those rabbit holes and it takes a really long time to figure out what is fake. It also turns out that not everything they believe in is fake. They, some yeah, things some, that they, yeah. I think it was Nixon who said, "Just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean that they are." Yeah, chasing me. me. Yeah. Exactly. So they are correct about some things, but here are some insights. One is there's a study that looked at sixty-seven different countries and the amount of violence in those countries, just as a civic society, how much mm-hmm. violence they have, and how much belief in COVID conspiracy theory there is. And it turns out there's a very high correlation. Ah. Now, why why is there a correlation between the amount of violence and COVID conspiracy? I think it's because conspiracy theory gives us a sense that we understand the world around us. Mm-hmm. We all have to acknowledge that living with uncertainty is very tough. And, and COVID has created a tremendous amount of... Sure. What's going on here? Like, what is going on? But, you know, is this a pandemic? Is this a reason to close the country for... For a year and a half, I, yeah. the, the numbers are like. My guess is that in Ireland, in the regular year, how many people die? I think
0: about 32,000, 35,000. Okay. okay. So yeah. you
3: say, yeah. you know, what, what is happening here? Is this, is this a reason to shut down the whole country? Why? So, anyway, so there's lots of uncertainty. And I think that the more violence there is in a society, the more we have pressure to find a reason. Yeah. for something. And conspiracy theories give you a reason. Here's an evil person that is trying to to do to this. To fabricate something. It's, yeah, it's yeah. not just, we don't know. Like, yeah. you know the, and, the, and the medical literature is basically saying, I don't know, yeah. it's not a science. So that's that's one thing, that there's a pressure to find an answer. That's one thing. So it's like filling in the gaps then. That's right. And, yeah. and I'll give you one other input on that. There was a beautiful paper many years ago on uh, people who are abducted by aliens. Do you know there are people who have been- ab- <laughs> No, but I love all this stuff, so yeah. <laughs> So do, do you know this? There are people, so there are, people, there are people who are convinced that they were abducted by aliens. Mm. And, and there was a question of how, how does it happen? And here's a story. When we are asleep, particularly when we have ram sleep, when we dream, uh, our brain secretes a substance to our spinal cord that paralyzes our bodies. Okay. I mean, why is it that during REM sleep? In REM sleep, your brain gives instruction to your body. Walk, move. I mean, you know, dreaming mm. is not different than a than wake state. How come your body is not moving? Because we're paralyzed. So that's fact number one. Fact number two, for some people, sometimes that substance wears off a little bit after they wake up. Did it ever happen to you that you wake up and you are paralyzed for a and few yeah, seconds? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. And you describe it as groggy, but you're actually, you can't move. That's right. So there's a percentage of people that this happened to them occasionally. So that's fact number two, you wake up paralyzed, very Mm -hmm. confusing, and so on. Fact number three, there are some people who are better in connecting the points and adding things that were not really there. So for example, if I show you a painting with a house and a tree and I take it away, I say, please draw what you saw and you add the window and the door and the dog and the cloud and so on, Mm You've you've filled out the the oh, gaps. You populate the whole thing. That's yeah. right, and it turns out that the people who believe that they were abducted by aliens have all of those things. They were up Paralyzed. Sometimes after a bad dream, and they filled in the gaps. Wow. So now they believe in that, and and I believe, and this is just a speculation, but I believe that a lot of the conspiracy theorists are very good in connecting. Dots, yes, mm. right. So, if you yeah. think about my case, my version of modest proposal, saying the word "Gates," selling the way the word "vaccination," a few other things, Yeah, yeah, and and there you, then and the there, picture is almost complete, and there you have it, yeah. And and one last thing about the the COVID deniers, there was a a case. I I, I of course follow lots of those people and so on. Uh, there was a case recently of a guy who is one of the leaders of the the COVID deniers uh, revolution and. He got COVID. He was tested positively. The denier. Yeah, the denier. And he broadcasted from the hospital with oxygen in his nose um, saying that he's tested positively. But he said that he was arrested by the police a few days earlier in a demonstration. And his theory was that the police poisoned him. They injected him with something. Something. And then he got sicker. And from his dying bed, he pled people- He died. He, he eventually died, but he pled people before he died to not stop the fight against COVID. And after he died, the amount of people who started believing that he was indeed poisoned by the police, and they started describing more and more people who died as being poisoned by the police have increased dramatically. And and this is, this is the last point I want to make on this. And this reminded me a lot about Leon Festinger and the Cognitive Dissonance. And if you remember the, the story from Leon Festinger is that he he originally, there was some, some cult. And the, the woman who was lead, leading this cult said, and I'm making up the date, I remember it, but she said something like, on December 20th, 1954, um, the world would end because people have been unpleasant and not cooperating and so on. Uh, But if you'll join my cult, uh, there's going to be some aliens who will come with their ships and take all of the people who believe in me away, and we will be the only ones saved. They were like the the Heaven's Gate guys. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. And and Hale-Bopp,
2: the comet, came along, was sitting in the sky for... Like two months or something yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, that's right. that's right. And,
3: uh, Same so, kind of deal. So yeah. she was she was early. She was she ahead was, uh, <laughs> yeah. anyway. of her time. Yeah, she was ahead of her time. Exactly. <laughs> and and Festinger, a very famous social psychologist, uh, heard this and he said, I want to go and see what happens. And imagine that you have two groups of people. You have the the real devotees, yeah. the people who said goodbye to their families and spend all their money. And, you know, they were just there waiting for the aliens to come and pick them up. Yeah. And there were the people who were on the fence. They didn't. Uh, they kept <laughs> yeah, their money in the bank, bank account. They didn't say yeah. goodbye to their family members. They Could were they kind just of on to the wait fence. To see, and see what happens. Now on that date, nothing happened. Who do you think stayed with the leader? The people who were the serious devotees, or the people on the fence? You're going to tell me the people on the fence? So no. So what happened was? <laughs> what happened was that the people on the fence said, "Oh, you know, we thought this might be right, might be wrong." We didn't commit too much. Yeah, yeah, so we're gone. We're gone. The strong devotees, the people who you would think were the most heartbroken, the most dischanted, the most people disappointed, actually were the ones who stayed with her the most. So the strongest devotees. The strongest devotees stayed with her the most. In fact, what they said was that it was thanks to her that the world did not end. And this is where Leon Festinger developed this notion of cognitive dissonance, which is saying that if you act in a very strong way towards some goal, you show your loyalty by selling your stuff and saying goodbye to your family, you join the conspiracy theorists, whatever it is, it's not easy for you to say, I was wrong. Yeah, mm-hmm. You need to keep on justifying your actions. So if you have actions versus beliefs, if you act in a certain way, you believe in this woman and you sold your property and so on, your beliefs would Elevation. follow. yeah, yeah, yeah. Your yeah, beliefs yeah. would follow and you would not have it. And, and this, I think, is going to stay with us with the COVID deniers. Now we have a very strong group with, with social structure and people who've given up lots of things. People have fights with their family members. I mean, there's lots of things, lots of behaviors. I know one
0: or two people who've had really...
3: Are going in that way. and And I think that... When COVID is over, the the movement is not going to be over because the movement will have to find a way to something else to to fuel itself up and to keep on justifying itself. Mm.
2: I was going to ask you with that cognitive bias, is that something you see from in an economics or like so those guys were so invested in this idea that the aliens were coming. Is that something that, that people see? They're so invested in in a company or in, in a...
0: When you see it, you see it. I mean, we saw it here years ago in the property speculation. That what happened to all those... You, you see it, for example, if you ever watch CNBC, yeah. you know, ticker tape thing. And some big square head chief executive comes out and he kind of says when his company's shares are collapsing, I defy you not to own my company. (laughs) And you have the people who have invested an enormous amount of time and money. They double down on something that they kind of, they have to believe in. And it's the same thing. We'll see it in the next big boom bust here, which is coming, is that the very people who will cheerlead over the hill are, as Dan says, these people who actually committed to the fact that the world was going to end on the
3: 17th of February, 1954. So yeah. the, the the notion there the is that- the COVID people are the same. So we're not so sure about our preferences. Do you like A or like B? No, mm. we're not so sure. But when you act in a certain way, that's very concrete. I bought this chair. Yeah. I bought this house. The, the, the things that we act on, Yes. are very clear. There's no there's no ambiguity. You know, when, when I look at your behavior, I look at your actions. I don't know what your preferences are. I look at your actions. Yeah. But the notion is that when we look at our own self, you would say, oh yes, I know my preferences, but eh, I don't know my preferences so well. You know, do I like this or this? I'm not yeah. so sure. But actions are are much more they, they crystallize Speak louder than That's words right. Right. I, apparently, my mother said that to me once yeah. when yeah. I was seven years old and and what what we do is because of that, the way we act lead our preferences. so it, it shows in all kinds of ways like after people go to vote, they increase the belief in the correctness of their yeah. their party. That's true. Yeah. yeah right yeah, yeah. preferences follow the behavior. Uh, you buy a house. You're more sure that this was the right thing to do. You get married. You're more sure that you love yeah. that person. And by the way, some of this is good, right? Like if you think about marriage, having a big wedding that is very expensive, you know, probably keeps people together for longer. And not necessarily a bad a bad idea, but it's not always it's not always good. And and if we go back to the COVID question, we have groups of people who have been very invested in COVID. So for example, um, you know, for a long time, they would say that the vaccines have been only approved for emergency use. Right. And when, when the FDA finally approved the Pfizer vaccine for real use, I talked to some of my, you know, COVID denier, you know, guiding spirits, and they told me, they said, you know, you think that the, a vaccine that was approved is the one that they were given? No, it's not the same. <laughs> yeah, they yeah, approved yeah. something different than this. Th- their commitment, yeah. you know, and, and the moment you invest so much energy and time and your social structure changes, the idea that one day you would say, oh, yes, I was wrong, is very, very low. Yeah, yeah. The I'm, cognitive structure that needs yeah. to maintain it. And this is why, you know, when I, I'm going back to the people who hate me, for a while, I was saying, you know, they'll they'll stop hating me when COVID is over because it will be over. No, I don't think it'll be over. <laughs> they'll I find think, something else. I think they'll find something else because they have too much committed uh, to that and they're not going to be able to give it up as easily. But it's a very, very complex issue. Very, very complex issue. But, but just to finish the COVID issues, I think the fundamental backbone of this whole issue is lack of trust. Yeah. I think it's lack of trust in the government, it's lack of trust in the medical system, it's lack of trust in the FDA. And that lack of trust created lots of opportunities. Then on top of that, there are people who benefit a lot from spreading fake news. You know, it's a it's a clickbait mm. kind of yeah, a world in yeah. which, you know, you put the picture of me with half a beard mm-hmm. uh, because of my scars and you write something the devil is, you know, so whatever. It's much more clickable than if you, Put the picture of you know here's the uh, scientist yeah. working on on a new vaccine, so we have we have the fundamentals of online media, social media, clicking economy, lack of trust, incentives for people who get clicks, and then we have a very uncertain, frightening world in which people are looking for some explanation of what is going on, and then that creates a system that feeds on itself. And once it feeds yeah. on itself, very hard to break. So what does that say about tech and social media in all of this? So there was there was a book on the history of fraud. And in that book, he wrote that every time there's a new technology, almost always the first use is illegal, immoral, right? The radio came and there were... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, All kinds of advertising for all kinds of things that never happened. There was mail, there was mail fraud. And the argument is that the internet started in an unregulated way and we really didn't understand it. And, you know, I don't think we had to have what is called the attention economy. It could have gone a different way. It could have been gone into a way in which we would have all paid for content and that would have been fine. Yeah. But because people have this very special, effective reaction to paying nothing, to something that is free, most of the models are advertising models. Now we didn't have to have it; it's not, it's not written that the internet has to be free and everything is, is just mm. advertising based. We could have paid; like it, it's a, it's a big fork <laughs> in how the world could have done, but things would have been very different because now that you have what is called the attention economy, that people just want clicks. Clicks are basically about getting people's gut. To want to see something, right? So it's more pictures and more yeah, things that are knee jerk reaction, and more things that are surprising and strange, and and it didn't have to be this way. So that's a really important thing to to understand. And now that we understand it, by the way, it wasn't too long ago that we saw the Arab Spring and we thought, you know, that social media is is the the way for democracy. Yeah. <laughs> then we saw the American elections. And we say, hey, not so much, right? It's the opposite of that. So I think there are basically two big forces. One is the attention economy, and the other one is, of course, the intervention of foreign governments in bots. I remember when Trump was elected, I don't remember how many Facebook followers I had, but the next day, half of them, the, the, the next day after he was elected, I wrote something kind of, you know, a little bit not too, too nice about Trump. And I, as a, as a Democrat, I said, I felt that I neglected the bottom half of American society. Mm. And that the reality is that I understand the, the, the anger of the bottom half of the American society. Yeah. And, and I felt I, like, I teach at a very nice university. I could have gone to teach a little bit in the high school, right? I felt I, felt I could have done all kinds of things. And, and the next day, half of the people who follow me on Facebook disappeared. And it surprised me. I thought, oh, you know, half of the people following me were Trump supporters and they got so upset by this post. Then I realized that the next day, Facebook deleted the hundred million fake accounts.
2: Yes, yeah.
3: It wasn't It wasn't that they left. There were lots of fake accounts. Um, <laughs> They're all Russian that, bots. <laughs> that, that, that's right. So, so I think between the attention economy on one hand and the interference of, all kinds of superpowers trying to use bots to basically stir up civic unrest i think we have a very bad system and the question is what are we willing to do and because you know every time that you set up new rules you take away some freedoms well, that that's the big thing, isn't it? Like that's the big argument in
2: America. It's it's all about the First Amendment and freedom of speech. But So so here's here's another
3: thing. Driving. Yeah. Not that many freedom in driving.
2: You have <laughs> to be yeah, true,
3: true. you have to be of a certain age, you can't drive drunk, you can't drive in red lights, you can't park in handicap spots. You have to the, drive a certain side of the road. I mean a yeah. lot of rules. Now, why are we willing to accept so many rules about driving? Mm. The reason is that we see the downside consequences of mistakes, right? We see cars on the side of the road. We see people in hospital. With online misbehavior, we don't see the downside. Yeah. But it's there. It's just not as visible. And you the know, connection isn't quite as obvious. The connection isn't quite as obvious, but statistically, by the way, it's very obvious. Right. Okay. It's just not as obvious as the individual. Mm at the individual level, right? You can't say, oh, this post got this person to be depressed. Or you can't say this post got this person to go and and, and do X, Y, or, yeah. or Z. Statistically, there's no question. But because it's statistical and it's not one person hurting another one, you don't see it in the same clarity, we don't have the same will to take action. like. If we could see people dying rather than getting depressed, if we could see people, you know, I, I can tell you that being attacked, being bullied, it's very painful. Absolutely. You know, when, when it started happening, I would focus most of the day, but at night I would have dreams about traveling the world and looking for a place with less hate to live in. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy, and, yeah. and you know, this is nothing. You You think about kids who, Getting bullied in schools—you, you think about uh, minorities. I mean, there's lots of lots of those terrible things that are happening, and because they're statistical, and because it's not one action that is causing, yeah, all of that, yeah. we don't have the same willingness to act. But, but I think it's it's our psychology of cause and effect rather than the real impact. So, so we need we need to wake up. We need to understand the downside consequences, and we need to start planning a better social online world. I I think that the online social world could be wonderful, but it has to be redesigned.
0: That was a complete pleasure.
3: A tour de force. It's fantastic stuff. We're around
0: the houses. Uh, By the way, you can hide in the basement here of the HQ in (laughs) Dunleary. Very good. No, the fact guys walking around with half beards is totally normal (laughs) here. (laughs) It's great. Now, Dan, huge pleasure. Huge pleasure. Lovely,
3: Lovely to spend some time with you. Before we let you go, I just want to give you a quick
2: glimpse of a recent TED Talk by Stephanie Kelton. Now, Stephanie, as you may know, has been on this podcast and has been a guest down in Kilkenomics. She's a U.S. economist and at the forefront of the new MMT movement, Modern Monetary Theory. Have a listen to this clip.
1: When we hear the word deficit, we probably think of a deficiency or shortfall. A deficit always sounds ominous. So when we hear that the federal government just ran a $3 trillion budget deficit, it can sound worrying, and it can even anger people. But there's another way to think about government deficits. Just as a six becomes a nine when we view it from a different angle, a government deficit becomes a financial surplus when we look at it from another perspective. Here's what I see. I see what's happening on the other side of the government's ledger. When the government spends more than it taxes away from us, it makes a financial contribution to some other part of the economy. Their red ink is our black ink. When you look at it this way, it becomes clear that every deficit is good for someone. The question is, for whom? And what are those deficits being used to accomplish? It matters how the money is spent and who ends up with the resulting surplus. Tax cuts that deliver huge windfalls for those at the top without sparking investment and opportunity for the rest of the population don't make good use of deficits. On the other hand, spending trillions to support the economy during the pandemic put the deficit to good use. We just had the shortest recession in U.S. history. To me, that was fiscally responsible. Being responsible shouldn't mean running the government's finances like a household. Instead of trying to keep the deficit in check, Congress should be focused on keeping inflation in check. That's the real limit on spending. And it's the thing to watch out for if you're thinking about spending trillions on things like infrastructure, healthcare, and free college, instead of asking, how will we pay for it? Congress should be asking, how will we resource it?
2: So you can hear this TED Talk with Stephanie Kelton, along with loads of other really brilliant TED Talks. So that's TED Talk daily, wherever you get your podcasts.